Welcome to Joey Ito's Conversations. I'm with Andre and Karthik, and we were just brainstorming about uh, non-duality and AI, which for most people don't seem like a uh, connected topic. So I thought it might be useful for us to try to describe it uh, in uh, non, I guess somewhat technical, but non uh, in lay terms. Um, but maybe, first of all, maybe the two of you can introduce yourselves. Um, and Karthik is in India, so that's why we have just a picture of him. He's Skyped in by voice. Um, Karthik, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. My, I'm, I'm Karthik Dinakar. I'm a, a fourth-year PhD student um, at the Media Lab. Um, and I'm broadly interested in philosophy, particularly Eastern philosophy, and uh, a family of uh, machine learning called probabilistic graphical models. Okay, I guess I'll go next. Uh, I'm Andre Wool. I'm a PhD student at the Department of Visual and Environmental Studies at Harvard and a member of the Religions and the Practice of Peace Initiative at Harvard Divinity School. And uh, my research is on AI and ethics. Um, I'm interested in uh, applying nonviolence and peace work into scholarship and technological development. And Andre, you were in my uh, class that I did to attend and yes. uh, awareness, mm -hmm. which I think is part of where we started our conversation. Mm -hmm. And Karthik, um, I guess uh, uh, you have been uh, sort of working on uh, non-duality, and I remember when you it sort of clicked for you on uh, connecting uh, AI and, uh, and non-duality. And so maybe you guys can describe a little bit, of, maybe, I don't know, Karthik, do you want to start on like how you got to connecting the idea of non-duality and AI and how you think they're related? Sure. Um, actually, it started with the first version of the mindfulness awareness uh, class that you co-taught with Tenzin the first time. So I took that class and um, I read a bunch of readings. Uh, there was non-duality readings in them. Um, got broadly interested. Uh, then got connected with people like Gunther and Ellen. Um, and non-duality is something that I am uh, familiar with as a child growing up in this part of India, where it's known as um, Advaita, the Sanskrit word for uh, non-dual. Um, and how it connects with machine learning for me is uh, I found I always found machine learning to be um, extremely statistical, and I didn't see that there was a lot of affordance statistically to embed human judgment uh, within the algorithms mathematically um, and also in the training process. So it, it all started with um, simultaneously exploring, well, how do you do human-in-the-loop machine learning? and also just being interested in non-duality from a well-being perspective. And slowly, as time has evolved, um, I've begun to see such inspiring structural similarities between the two. And we are at the point now where we think um, we can actually use some of these abstract concepts from non-duality to improve the math and um, make a machine learning uh, system and algorithm work for um, um, work better for humans. Yeah, um, so I started looking at non-duality through the lens of um, philosophy um, and I become, became interested in AI because it's just such a common buzzword these days and um, uh, I've heard a lot of stories and concepts um, that actually drew a very negative picture of AI. Um, I've been always interested in um, learning about technological anxieties and philosophy of technology in general. And something that is very much closely tied with the AI conversation is the idea of existential risk. And I've become became interested in um, exploring that. and. Um, for me, like combining AI and duality also meant to scrutinize what it actually means, uh, what, what intelligence means, and for me to define the concept of intelligence itself and um, 
Understanding intelligence through the lens of non-duality meant for me to to see that intelligence is a more universal phenomenon um, that we are all part of. It's part of a complex system, actually. And um, so I started to think that AI is not like the dangerous other that might pose us to risks, but it actually tells a lot about the human condition, that any kind of technology is a manifestation of the human mind. And um, so if, if we are facing existential risks posed by AI technology, uh, we also have to look at why risks have emerged in the beginning. I think that's something that we have to also extend to looking at what the human condition is right now and um, how we develop and deploy um, these emerging technologies. It was, it was kind of in the readings that we did before meeting today, but uh, it was an interesting... Do you, was, it, was, it, was it Bruno Latour that went out humility and inversions? Because I think... I think I can't remember who said it. you guys can mind, but, but I think they're in trying to understand non-duality, and Western religion and Western philosophy has grappled with it because it is, it is kind of a difficult concept. Uh, and I think some people talk about it as being similar to unity, but that it's fundamentally different from unity in that it's much more humble than unity because you're not sort of causing some, some hierarchy. You're sort of this, this is more of a non. Uh, existence of, of ego and other things. I don't know if you guys have a better way of describing, maybe you should jump in and describe non-duality a little bit. Mm -hmm. Carl, do you want to start or should I say something? Uh, take, take a first step. Go ahead. Okay. It's, it's interesting because, um, there, you know, I, when I did some research, non-duality is, is, is a concept that you can find in many different religions, especially Asian religions. And, um, there's not like one definite definition of it. Um, some say that non-duality is like a loss of self and, and nothingness. Some say that it's like, you know, the, um, how do you say, like everything. Um, it's oneness. There are many different ideas. Um, but I, I read an interesting article once um, that um, explained that actually all these different definitions of non-duality um, are based on the duality of language itself, and it's very hard to grasp on duality conceptually. And to me, to me, it made a lot of sense. So, what all these different traditions and and uh, concepts of non-duality are trying to explain is actually the same, and um, it leads to a form of experience that cannot be grasped conceptually, and is much more closely tied to um, a form of awareness. Mm -hmm. um, that can be applied to an ethical standpoint, um, a certain form of a way of living mm -hmm. and of experiencing the world. And, and uh, yeah, go ahead, um, I, I think that is quite right. I think in the West, uh, aspects of non duality, especially as examined under philosophy, uh, there's, if you if you look at non-duality, for instance, um, it's usually studied in the South Asian uh, studies departments in most academic centers in the U.S. because uh, it, it it's not very uh, mainstream because it's confused, like Andre says, with a lot of Asian religions. Um, what new non-duality is to me is I think for me it's a contemplative practice. It's given a phenomenon that you as an observer are observing, non-duality basically says um, the act of perception um, is a very deeply subjective experience. When I'm viewing something, I'm viewing it with my own subjectivity. And so it's a contemplative practice that forces you to think about, step back and think about that deep subjectivity within you um, and distinguishes that from what you are as a human being, that what you are as the perceiver. Um, and by acknowledging that uh, what is getting perceived by you is influenced by your own subjectivity, um, allows you to adjust for things where um, uh, Otherwise, it would look something completely different. So uh, uh, a practical example I can give is, um, and I
talking about this, but if, if you look at the Hubble Space Telescope and you look at pictures in astrophysics captured by these telescopes, the path of light from the galaxies reaching you as uh, an observer, I think there was an echo yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, so, so the path of light traveling from the galaxy to you as an observer doesn't pass a straight linear line, linear path, because it gets bent by the interacting effects of the galaxies in between, which have their own gravity, have their own gravities, right? So you have to adjust for the gravitational lensing aspect to get the, to correct the image. Um, and that's exactly what we are talking about. So that's what non-duality means. I think for most, at least in the Vedic tradition in the East, non-duality basically means there is no difference between you as a living being and everything else that is there in the universe, right? So you can just say, okay, I am made of atoms and molecules, but I'm, I come from the same stardust that makes the sun and the moon. And so there is actually no separation between um, uh, these entities. Mm -hmm. uh, it's non-dual. And that's, so that's what it means for me. Mm -hmm. More than a philosophy, I think it's a contemplative practice. There's a funny quote that um, Kevin Slavin used in his paper. Um, uh, and it was, we, we actually talked about it as we were stuck in traffic and discussing design and science. The idea of the word is you're not stuck in traffic, you are traffic. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and I think that's a version of thinking about non-duality as kind of a designer. It's also, if you bring in the humility, it's the participant design. Mm -hmm. right? So you're, you're part of the system that's being designed. Absolutely. And you're also being affected in real time with what you're doing as well as what everyone else is doing. So I think that the idea of, because I, my, my wife Misa moved to Boston a couple of, now a little over two years ago. One of the things that she was surprised is in Japan, this is not over-stereotype, but just roughly in Japan when you're driving, you're always trying to make the traffic work better by letting somebody in. You're always very kind of, um, uh, I don't know the right English word for it, but you're always trying to allow the flow. Mm -hmm. And, and, and if you do anything that looks like you're disrupting traffic, everyone gets upset at you. Here, it's like, you're against the traffic, you know, get out of my way, right? And it's kind of like, you fight this thing, and because everybody fights it, it kind of aggravates it, you know? And I think that um, the, uh, uh, when we think about sort of complex systems, um, one of the key things I think is for each, because each of the actors in the system and their behavior, and again, the thing interesting about actors is when you start thinking across scales, we have our microbes uh, in our gut, which influence a great deal of how we behave, uh, maybe much more than we um, believe. And they're quite one with everything, right? Because they probably don't individually have uh, uh, consciousness, but they, they emergently have a, a lot of influence on our behavior. And then we have the self-deception that we're conscious. And I think a lot of the Eastern... Um, non-duality awareness um, exercises are about how do you get out of this um, somewhat self-deceptive idea that you have a single consciousness and that the microbes aren't in control and that you're not being just... And I, think it's, I think there's a lot of neuroscience that shows that a lot of consciousness is just making up stories as you go along to pretend like you understand what's actually happening um, when in fact it's, it's, it's really a lot there's a lot more chaos going on, right? And I think that one of the problems when you try to design systems as a uh, sort of, I don't know what the opposite of non-dual is, I guess it's dualistic approach where you have a, a, a designer and a user or, or a designer and an object and an object and an effect, that life is not that Newtonian and simple. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, uh, as we start to develop machines that are going to learn on their own or fiddle with things like the climate, that this kind of non-dualistic way of thinking about how you intervene is actually um, possibly more appropriate, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, and I wonder, um, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but does it require, because it's not like you're going to be writing code while you're meditating, right? It's, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's what, 
what, how, so how does this contemplative practice affect what you do, and how do you affect what gets deployed? I mean, is it is it at the sort of user philosophical layer? But like Karthik actually is writing code yeah. that um, <coughs> represents his values, right? Mm -hmm. um, I guess there's so, multiple layers. Go ahead, Karthik. Yeah, so um, uh, I think this is a great point that you made. So let's put a real example out there, um, then we can talk about it. So let's take the problem of predictive policing, right? Most people are familiar with this problem. Say Joey is the New York City Police Commissioner, and everybody's talking about machine learning and they're excited for genuine reasons. And so NYPD wants to be seen as doing something using machine learning. And so there is an idea which says, let's do predictive policing in the five boroughs of New York City to predict the outbreak of various kinds and types of crimes that will allow us to better plan, better deploy resources, etc. Right. So NYPD puts out a request for proposals and a whole bunch of startups respond. Um, and while evaluating the proposals, right, you have to evaluate each of these startups. How you do that uh, is, let's say you just put out a sample sanitized data set from all the historical 30, 20, 50 years or whatever historical data that's in NYPD. Uh, a slice of it is made available for all these startups because that's the benchmark on which they will be evaluated. So in comes startup A and it says, look, at our accuracy is 98%. And in comes um, uh, startup B and it says, well, our accuracy is 99% and we can do it three months before the outbreak actually happens. Now, the thing is, if you're a machine learning person who actually did the machine learning on that data set, there are several problems that can come up later, right? Because to Joey, to your point, this has to fit in inside a complex system, right? Um, the crime bill that was passed in 93 in the US Congress and a whole bunch of cities and states followed up because the mood in the country was to go after crime back then. Um, it is now fairly well documented in research that the bad effects of those bills, and there were good effects, but some unintended effects maybe were that certain neighborhoods, certain ethnicities, certain minorities were disproportionately incarcerated and tried for the same crimes. So if you have a data set like the NYPD does, that has baked into it these existing biases, these biases will actually uh, manifest in the predictive aspect of any algorithm you're going to train on them, right? So we don't want, for instance, uh, an algorithm that says, okay, Williamsburg as a, a an area in Brooklyn was once, you know, nobody wanted to go there and blah, blah, blah. But uh, you can you can see how uh, if you don't adjust it for uh, the biases that are present in the historical data set, you can get uh, some very unintended consequences, right? So, so Joey, to your question, how does this contemplative practice help you? I think when you step back, when you take a meta-level view and you think, okay, this phenomenon in front of me right now that manifests itself in, 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 in the form of this data set, right? in the form of this crime um, statistics, crime report data set, um, I'm viewing it from my perspective only. right? And maybe I was not born in New York or maybe I wasn't even born during that era. But by asking yourself these questions, it forces you to consider how it fits in with um, the entire system, the complex system. And I don't think that can solve all the problems associated with something like predictive policing, but at least to the extent that you want the math and the machine learning and the technical aspects of it to be corrected, 
um, uh, you, uh, in my opinion, I benefit a lot from thinking about non-duality. I don't know if that answers, um, that kind of fits in with the whole complex systems thing uh, that you were just saying. So, so would you say that the concept of non-duality applies in a way um, it would help to, to identify the bias implied in these data and how you use them, or where does non-duality for you lie in this uh, specific example? Right. So that's exactly it. Uh, it forces you to acknowledge the deep subjectivity that is there mm. in your perception of this data set. And the question can also be, okay, whose perspectives are worth capturing, right? So instead of a machine learning person training the algorithm, do you want somebody with a right-leaning point of view politically or do you want somebody with a left-leaning point of view? Um, who is going to do the adjustment for all these biases in the data set? Um, and so I think the, the non-dual aspect of it is, um, it's, it's, for me, it, it casts a light on how subjective this whole thing is. So what mm -hmm. it looks like for me uh, may not be the same way as what it looks like or impacts somebody else. And uh, and I think the, the complex system in which the machine learning uh, algorithms have to fit in is a big challenge. Uh, and uh, to the extent that you can mediate some of that, by thinking about these things is what I was trying to say. Mm -hmm. and, and I think in a way, and correct me if you think this is different, and I think I read it in one of your, both of your writings, but, um, but non-duality is also a, a thing about where you don't know where you begin and where you end and how our atoms have been circulating. And so in a way, the idea of an objective truth is kind of this idea that there's an origin and there's a center, and there's objectivity. Mm -hmm. If you believe in the idea that our, so we're all distributed and we happen to be conscious, mm -hmm. but that consciousness doesn't really represent much more than sort of these little local maximum that have reached a threshold, but that we're all sort of part of the same soup, then really you can look at things from any position. Mm -hmm. And any position in a way is somewhat true in its own way. Mm -hmm. And so I think once you kind of give in to the idea that there is no origin, point of origin, then you can do what any Kartik is doing, which is to assume subjectivity and try to model it and understand it rather and, 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 and weirdly accept it, right? Because I think a lot of what, what we're, what Kartik is doing, which is slightly different than the approach that many people are doing with data, is I think a lot of people are just trying to objectively clean it. Mm -hmm. But I think what Kartik's work is, is I saw one of his slides that I actually used in my talk is, you know, if you say have the same set of data, a teenager looking at the data and an adult looking at the data will view the conversation on Facebook as a very different conversation. They are both objectively correct in some way um, because in their framework, that's bullying or that's a drama, but that in fact both are true. And so I think in, in an objective world where it's you and this thing, you're trying to get it to be true when you can model it and everything is true, it's just a different lens. Is that, is that accurate, Karthik? That's, uh, I, I couldn't agree more. That's, uh, uh, I, I couldn't have expressed that any better. That's exactly it. Um, the, the fact that uh, everything seems to be a continuum of things and it's very hard to say where one thing stops and where one thing ends, I think ties in with the idea of complexity and the, the non-duality aspect of it. Um, and actually, the I have to add that the definition of non-duality that we are discussing now is, I think, um, uh, a very simplified definition. Uh, one of the things that is criticized about philosophy in the East is uh, it becomes very technical and hard to understand. But I think the good side of it is there are so many flavors of non-duality. And in my experience, um, if, you, if you take the machine learning process and stretch it out on a canvas and you say, where are some of the pain points that lead to uh, algorithms behaving the wrong way? 
um, mediating the data set like Joey just eloquently described is one way in which it can be tackled. Um, the mindset that you need to, uh, that might help you a priori for you to be in when you go into these specific stages is also a very important thing in my opinion. So it's, it's, it's a full continuum of tricks in the machine learning process and um, I agree. I think that uh, the, the lensing, the correction of the bias, which happens um, even before the machine learning process starts, is uh, uh, the start of it. That was very well explained, actually. Mm -hmm. So, <clears throat> yeah, so I, I'm, you know, like I said before, I'm, I'm not an engineer and I'm not working actually practically on developing technologies. Um, and I'm looking at this from the perspective of philosophy and um, yeah, recently also like assessed spiritual development. And um, I think like one important aspect um, talking about AI and ontology is the idea that one cannot fully be enlightened unless all other parts in this world are swell. So this is part of the complexity idea that we are all interconnected, that no duality is not only that we are just like there's no difference between us, but that everything is dependent upon each other. Mm -hmm. And one's own existence, I am I'm related and interdependent with many other things around me. And these other things are, again, connected with many other things. And so I'm indirectly actually related to everything which is out there in this universe. So my being actually has a big impact, like snowball or butterfly effect, like on everything else, and the same with all other things. So um, to me, the idea that one cannot be fully enlightened and until all other parts are as well can also be reversed. So one also has to help other parts to enlighten in order to be, um, to, in order to enlighten. Um, and for me, this means talking about AI and technology and engineering that, um, interestingly, I came to the idea that it's not only about looking at how we can, you know, develop technology differently or what we should do with technology, but in order to develop transformative technologies, actually we have to first transform people. And then that means both developers, but also the users. So the yeah. technology is only an amplification of the human condition and what the human is at right now. And um, if we change our own condition and um, help others to change theirs, um, through nonviolence and peace work um, and all sorts of positive impacts we can do, um, I think this will also have some immediate effects on how technology is developing and it can be applied. No, I just said that um, I completely agree with uh, what Andre said. And to me, there are three pieces to uh, this, right? So there's the cultural, the technical discussion, the design aspect, changing people's minds, as Andres says, that's extremely important. Um, uh, there's the technical nature of things, and it is a part, but it is only one part of the puzzle. Mm. Um, and there's a complex, adaptive uh, way of looking at, well, how can something like this uh, make an actual difference uh, within AI and within the effects that AI has or can have on society is uh, an important piece too. All the these three pieces need to work in tandem, um, I think, in my opinion, for uh, there to be the maximum benefit. It cannot be... Uh, uh, the sole domain of just one of us. Absolutely. And that's why it becomes so important to, to connect, you know, areas and of research and disciplines which um, seem so far away from each other. Like what we are doing here that, um, you know, have, have an engineer and someone from the Divinity School talk with each other because um, questions of, of, of you know, technology and questions of spirituality are actually much closer to each other than we might, many of us might think. And it's interesting because there have been interesting collaborations in the past. You know, I think that uh, there's a great book called The Dancing Wooly Masters, which is, I think, uh, Chung Ling uh, Wong, uh, uh, the Tai Chi master, and uh, uh, quantum physicists talking mm -hmm. to each other about energy and dancing energy. And uh, 
it's a beautiful book, and, and they, according to the book, they inspired each other quite a bit. And I think that as we um, explore, because I think the key thing about AI and why it's important now is that the impact on society is you know, immense and growing. Um, I think we're about to start to lock in uh, some of the designs and what we want it to do, so it's important timing from how we deploy it. But also, if you look at it from a societal perspective, and we've talked about this before, but you know, like, like people are against GMOs because the initial use of genetically engineering in foods was kind of a, a, a companies using it to somewhat oppressively manage farmers. You know, it was not really the best application. And you know, if, if electricity hadn't lit up Paris, but instead had been used primarily for electric chairs, we probably have had a very different view of electricity. And it feels like right now we're at a moment where AI could be used to make policing more fair, to make bail more fair, to make cars more safe. It could also be used to, um, you know, make companies, rich companies richer. It could be used to wage war. It could be used to do, you know, racial profiling. And so it's, we're in a moment where a lot of people don't really know what they think about AI yet. Some are afraid, some are not. But I think we need to sort of figure out a process where that kind of the societal uh, understanding of it, as well as the c communication of these sort of because because it's difficult to communicate. Even sitting here with Karthik and you, it's it's we're barely getting to where we're starting to be able to get to some practical bits. Yeah. You know? And so if you imagine people who aren't even leaning in. Um, it's a, they're quite different worlds, the, the, the sort of uh, philosophers and the, and the computer scientists. And so I think that the, the um, how, how to have this conversation, I think personally being from the media lab, I think a lot of it is about building stuff. Mm -hmm. you know, so I think if you can you know, actually get into some of the work that Karthik is doing on the biasing, I think you will start to see uh, through doing uh, some of these ideas that he's talking about. And Karthik, you know, I know you have started um, and have been working on sort of your contemplative practice, but you know, I think that uh, talking to uh, people who have been, uh, you know, thinking and working and doing in the space is also a very valuable. Thing. That, hopefully, that's what we're, our courses uh, at MIT and Harvard are doing. Um, yeah, but that's you know, that's why why I found also the course that you offered and how I met you in the beginning um, so fascinating. That uh, for example having enough sleep at night and finding one thing that you pursue for your well-being, be it meditation or Tai Chi or whatever. Um, this is becoming part of the syllabus and of the course requirements. And um, by putting these practices in such a you know, prominent spotlight and, and making the statement, this is important in order for people at the media lab to create transformative technologies. It has been very eye-opener for me too to understand that spiritual development and technological development are actually going parallelly and are supposed to meet at some point. Yeah, I, I, no, I, I, I think that the anti-disciplinary nature of what we're trying to do is a big help. And I should just profess that by saying that if I were to be a PhD student somewhere else in a traditional department, um, maybe doing something like this would not be as easy. Um, to your point, Joey, about um, we need to use this for building things, right? To actually put something tangible that shows very clearly that something made with this kind of a mindset with a lot of contemplation about um, non-duality can be helpful. Um, uh, that is extremely important and it, it weirdly enough ties with so many practical things about artificial intelligence that in my opinion uh, are just yearning for um, new things. For example, um, development of intelligent development environments for uh, machine learning in a way that makes it more accessible to people who don't know machine learning. Um, I know we were talking about this earlier, but you know, when when people think about AI, um, and so so a doctor in Mass General Hospital just down the uh, across the river from us um, posed this question to me, which is 
So if your deep learning algorithm tells me that uh, my heart, my patient needs uh, bypass surgery, how can I ask it how it made that decision? How did it arrive at that conclusion? So, so in a sense, it, it just boils down to uh, what are the rules, um, how are the rules made, and why are the rules the rules? And mm-hmm. when, when you think about a machine learning system, the, the problem that I think most, a lot of people now recognize within machine learning is uh, when you develop a predictive algorithm or even a clustering algorithm for something, uh, it is very hard to decipher what the rules of the algorithm, what the set of rules the algorithm used to make that decision, right? And and so if you don't even have a set of rules of why the algorithm made the decision that it needs to make, it's very difficult to tackle the question of, well, how are they the rules and um, uh, why are they the rules? So there's this whole rich field of, you know, causal inference, there's um, uh, human computer interaction, made basically intelligent user interfaces, IUI stuff, uh, there's Chi stuff, there's probabilistic programming. Um, there's just a wealth of areas just yearning for uh, something like what we are discussing to be made, in my opinion. And to the point that Andres made about your class, where you mandated seven hours of sleep, can I just say that after having worked in a whole bunch of big companies um, ever since I graduated out of undergrad, if there's one thing that is very similar to uh, people that are coders in these companies, and also maybe doctors and medical residents in uh, the various teaching hospitals down the river from where we live, and in fact, most most places in America, it's completely sleep deprived. And so, um, to Andres's point about well-being, uh, by forcing people to think about these kinds of things like non-duality, you also, I think, instill a practice of uh, well, have to sleep well. You know, it's difficult to be entering into a contemplative mindset if you haven't had good sleep and if you haven't had good food. And so there's an element that's good for you personally. And um, and I just think that uh, once, in my opinion, uh, really smart people um, uh, uh, who can be so much more productive and uh, can do so many other cool things, uh, they will benefit in other ways too, not just the, the lensing and making the AI better. So I think it's a win-win. And then talking about non-duality, it's, all, it's not only a win-win for like a win situation for those people themselves, but also for the things they're making, because um, the condition they bring into the lab and, and um, they are you know, trying to be creative and innovative and have ideas, is really reflecting on the condition they're at. So, like, the more their well-being is improved, the more also their their ideas will be be much more effective. Um, and one thing to talk about one more time about the aspect of building, um, I find it also interesting that, uh, to me at least, building does not necessarily mean to build devices um, or something actual. Like, building can also mean to build relationships, and that's why. Um, that's made my point of you coming from being located at a place like Divinity School and Harvard in the philosophy department. Um, we are talking about ethics. Um, that you know, you can you can build a lot of things also by building relationships and by building certain forms of atmospheres um, that in turn have an impact on on other things that are being built. Um, so I would say, for example, that hacking does not necessarily mean to be to, to hack as a coder, but it can also mean you can hack through kindness or mm-hmm. by caring about others, like also do that in a course, and that has an impact immediately on all the other things that we have already discussed that are non-duality, non-duality connected. Yeah, I think that that's the other question, though, that I, I, I have, which is, you know, they, 
when we, obviously I'm not the only one that was working on the internet, but we all were involved in many layers of trying to design the internet to have values of openness and permissionless and innovation and, and many things that we, we, we cherish. But obviously it can be used to do terrible things as well. Right? And so, you know, the, the, the designers of the technology may be all mindful, but the society also has to become uh, healthy, right? And I think that uh, obviously the technology affects um, in many ways how and what things can get transmitted and what people can do, but also it can be used in different ways. So, so I feel like the, 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 one of the difficulties is, and this is the same for climate as well, is um, how do you change the culture of everyone and I talked about this earlier with Tenzin and and, uh, and Daiko, who's a, a, a Zen monk, mm -hmm. is um, you know non-duality and Buddhism and many of the contemplative um, uh, methods are not very scalable. Let's use they yeah. use a Silicon Valley word, and they're not very evangelical, and they don't go around trying to recruit people. Yeah. And the ones that seem to be going viral are the ones that have business models, the ones mm -hmm. we might call Maguelness, you know. So so. So, so, and some of them are perfectly nice people who mm -hmm. create apps to help you meditate, mm -hmm. but they don't, they're, they're, but they're very pure, and I don't want to be too elitist here, but the very pure uh, contemplative traditions tend to really be focused on people who really are already sincerely interested in learning those things. Mm -hmm. And so one of the tricky parts that I haven't really figured out is how do you change the hearts and minds of everyone, or let's say, let's just call it, how do you hack culture? <laughs> and, and again, I, and I've talked about this before with others, but it's, you know, so you see things like the Beatles or punk rock or, 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 or maybe even, you know, others, but the, the things that tend to change uh, behavior, like the hippie movement in a kind of massive way, tend to have music and arts. Mm -hmm. And um, um, I'm curious if you think that there's a, uh, I mean, you know, like, it's interesting because, like, there's like C. Jobs and his India influence and the iPhone and the Think Different ads and stuff like that. You know, it's kind of a modern version of that. But I don't. But 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 I don't know how how you think that that because it's the, the system is actually bigger than the than just the technology, right? Yeah. To me, like all these cultural phenomena that inspire certain movements are. It doesn't really matter what. What, is, what, what, is, what the motivation was behind this phenomena, behind these people, but it matters more how they were received by the individuals. Okay. And um, I understand why many people who are deeply you know, involved in Buddhist practice, for example, are saying non-duality, the concept is, is it's not credible. Um, because you have to start, like, you cannot preach, for example, kindness on a large scale and don't say, like, give a smile to your neighbor. So, like, for me, it really starts on a local scale to, to spread this peace that you, that you want to spread in the world, to start within your family, in the closest circle, and, like, ripples, like, you know, when you drop a stone in a, in a pond, that, like, ripples, it spreads, like, because you are connected non-dually, and this is what these practitioners understand, when you're connected non-dually, it really doesn't matter um, how big, well, you actually you cannot get as big as, you, you know, you cannot go on a big scale by not acting on the local scale. Mm -hmm. So the local scale actually determines mm -hmm. how big it becomes. Mm -hmm. And so looking at the recipient of such cultural artifacts, I think it's more important to, to have a positive impact on the recipients, mm -hmm. and then they will understand these artifacts in certain ways. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, I don't think there's, that there's an agency of these artifacts that they, they can change to people's minds if they're not open to it already. Yeah, yeah. yeah my response to that would be, I think, um, I know we talked about humility earlier, right? So one of the main tenets of uh, non-dual practice, the contemplative practice, is to understand that humility is the... Um, gateway, so to speak, for gaining new knowledge. Um, the hacking culture part is such a hard question, Joe. I don't know if I have any answers, but the fact that we're doing this on Facebook Live, um, I think uh, just underscores if, if there are people out there, you know, people who have uh, 
experienced people who have actually thought about things like organizing campaigns, who have actually done this, at least on a small scale. Uh, we need to be working with um, a lot of people like that. It, it cannot be just uh, a bunch of you know technical people within MIT or within Stanford or a bunch of companies, etc. So I think I think the one of the questions that I ask you back is um, the the placing of something like this and the importance of working with people that uh, you otherwise wouldn't think of working with. Uh, precisely to bring about this culture change, I think is a very hard thing. So I don't know what you feel about that. Yeah, I, I guess I would go back to maybe what Andre said, and is I think the best is if you change yourself yeah. and it affects yep. those around you, mm-hmm. and that you're not focused on the other, you're focused on yourself. Mm-hmm. And that gets back to non-duality in a weird way because it's like it's not about the other. We're all together, and local makes sense. And I think um, that. And, and that's, that's what we try, try to do at media. We try not to tell others what to do. We try to do it on ourselves. We talk about what we do, and if people are inspired to do what we do, we help them do what we do. But we don't go in and, and try to fix things too much for other people. Having said that, we do care about the environment. We care about external things. But but the actions that we take, we try to make them local. And I think the the uh, the you know sort of stepping out of it. For a second, just looking at this as an analysis, I think the question is really, um, you know, we have this idea of growth being a, a good thing, measuring things in finance and power, and this uh, notion of um, you know, eliminating your enemies and, and taking free energy as a, a value. Mm-hmm. And I think that whether we're talking about Tenzin or some of the um, values that we talk about, about you know, humility more than enough is too much, acting locally. Um, you know, I think that, and, and, and Karthik talked about yearning, you know, I think there is a societal yearning for something different. And I think there is an intuition that we're doing something wrong. And I think that some of the, the protests that are happening, you saw the Dakota Pipeline thing, when you actually talk to indigenous people, um, a lot of them have this thing that's evolved over time, which is be very respectful of the environment and flourish inside of the system without trying to grow beyond the means of the system. So, so I think that there's kind of a potential energy because I think people understand collectively that there's something going on. And then I think if certain individuals can be good examples or certain organizations could be good examples, you might maybe you don't have to force it. Maybe you don't have to have a scaling plan. Um, and that the system, if it's self-adaptive as we hope it is, maybe it will it will absorb that. And uh, and and then it's kind of tricky because as we sit here and talk about it, um, we're already being dual, right? We're, we're we're talking about it as a thing rather than just doing it. You know, and it feels like it's okay to step back and do an analysis, but then maybe the most important thing is to you know. Um, Engage in the practice and 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 do good stuff and talk about vacation. Yeah, and and the, the the nice thing about you know non duality is that anybody can do it, and it's it's applicable to any kind of background and profession. It's it's just a matter really of kindness. Well, what Karthik would say, humility, humbleness. Um, um, so it's, it's very much about moral values and what kind of values you bring into your own work. And so everybody can make an impact in these sectors that he or she is in. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're getting to the... I'll let you finish, Patrick, because we're getting to the recommended maximum length of Facebook Lives, which is about 45 minutes. <laughs> okay. Um, so um, our common friend, our dear Kevin Slavin, mm-hmm. uh, once pointed me to watch a documentary by this British uh, uh, filmmaker called Adam Curtis, who is pretty famous. Um, and I can't say the title of the documentary because, you know, it has to be bleeped out. But it was about um, a documentary about computation and culture, generally, right? And what I found very intriguing in that documentary is the Nobel laureate um, who was featured in The Beautiful Mind. Um, I, I forget his name. Um, John Nash, 
after whom a very famous equilibrium within game theory is named, right? So Adam Curtis is interviewing this guy, and uh, John Nash says, hey, listen, I find it quite breathtaking that something that came out of a cauldron of um, fear, because he was, you know, at the time when he developed a lot of these ideas, these brilliant ideas, he was, you know, suffering um, with... um, an abject form of schizophrenia, right, which is very abject fear. It's not to say that people who suffer don't produce brilliant things because it is a brilliant thing. But John Nash was making the point that something that came out of that cauldron, he found it very surprising that it fit in so neatly to geopolitics, to evolutionary biology and, um, you know, trade negotiation and, you know, all kinds of things. They applied national equilibrium to all kinds of things. And he thought that was a little um, weird. And and I, I was so uh, taken by that, right? So, so one of the things about non-duality, which I constantly keep telling myself, is in the end, you're all stardust. We are all stardust, right? We're all, you know billions of years later or whatever, all the molecules that make us, um, God knows what kinds of stars we will become, right? Some gas nebula sometime. So when you think about that, um, it really is a way to diminish the effect that fear has on your own life, I think. I mean, that's what it's meant for me. And honestly, it's been such a transformative experience to not be handcuffed by fear all the time mm-hmm. um, and to just live life um, like Andre so eloquently says with kindness and uh, sleep well and eat well and, and actually be a lot more mindful uh, about what you're doing even if you're doing machine learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think that's, that's a good point to end on. I mean, I think the we can do this in another call, but I think the um, identification of fear as one of the things that causes um, otherwise uh, balanced people to make decisions or behave or have a point of view that's uh, dangerous and sort of um, how do we address those fears? I think that's a, uh, that's a, a, a key piece of how we make this work. Yeah.